Uh, thank goodness I'm on vacation. I am so looking forward to this. Uh, let's see who's going to show up. Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, it's good to see you here. I, I'm glad that you were able to make this vacation time. I know. Glad oh, yeah. And I, up. God, after after this Christmas season, I really needed it. I, you know, got all my bags packed, and I've, I've never really been on a cruise, and you know, my, my wife doesn't like boats, and this this was a hard sell, but uh, but she well, was like, yeah, go, go go have fun with your podcasting buddies, so well, I, that, that's, I that's exciting. I appreciate that, especially, you know, that the fact that there's not going to be any podcasting. That's the one thing that I wanted to get away from. I am so done with podcasting. I just want to have a relaxing time, you know, with a couple of my good friends, and, you know, just enjoy the scenery out here, but... uh as usual, it's surprising the podcaster who podcast about the Flash is the last one to show. So uh, hopefully Dave will make it here before the boat takes off. Oh, hi, hey, uh, 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 hey, oh, Dave. hi, oh. hi, hi, uh, whoa! <laughs> Thank you, Dave, for showing up. Money ticket. <laughs> okay, now we guarantee we're not doing any podcasting on this. No comics. No podcasting gear. We're all ready to go, right? No, oh, absolutely. Oh, oh man, my bag fell open. Oh, there, there's my blue snowball hey. microphone. Wait, oh, I thought I, I thought this was going to be completely vacation. Oh, just, just, just ignore that. I, I just, I, I, I don't know why I packed that. It's just, it's just really amazing that that that, that just popped in there. So I, I just, uh, let me let me get this all packed up. I'm really sorry, guys. I, I did bring some reading material with me. Just a couple of comics, not that many. Uh, okay, okay, I'll come clean. I brought my stuff and my laptop as well. So, do you want to go ahead and podcast about this anyway? Well, we we all seem to have brought different chapters of a comic book storyline where heroes go on vacation. So, I guess it works. That, that's a coincidence. Yeah, that's really bizarre. I kind of just planned this being a one-off vacation where we really didn't do anything all but, you know, just sightsee. So I guess it is kind of lucky that we got together and we're going to do this podcast thing. Cool. And see. <laughs> okay, well, and Hopefully if, that if, <laughs> if you haven't guessed, this is the opener for Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Show. And those two voices that you heard were my fellow co- podcasting co-host, Mr. Michael Bailey. Hello, Michael. Hey, Sean, and, and meeting Dave voice-to-voice for the first time. Very mm-hmm. nice. And Mr. Dave Walker. How's it yes. going? Hi, how's it going? <laughs> I am so glad that I have got you guys here to talk about this wonderful set of books with uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and, of course, The Flash. And it is the three-of-a-kind storyline, where, oddly enough, our three intrepid heroes decide to get together for a little vacation and end up having to take on supervillains. Well, maybe supervillains isn't the best way to describe them. <laughs> it's, it's heat wave, hatchet, and hair metal... Well, not hair metal anymore. Sonar. So uh, I thought you were about to say hair metal hero. I'm like, <laughs> really? Gonna... Well, no, hair metal hero. He's more. Um, he's more. Oh, what's his, what's her name? Zelda Rubenstein from uh, Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> this comic. <is> <laughs> he'll get the, he'll get the reference. 
But us. she should have totally worked for the Comics Code Authority and said that like every time, like, like editing it. Well, that would have been But uh, since that's going to be our opener, I will go ahead and do what I usually do and uh, take a little break here, plug a couple of promos. I will be putting in some promos for the uh, people who are on the show throughout the uh, episode. But when we get back, we're going to start off with the first part of Three of a Kind, the Green Lantern issue. So after we get back from this break, stay tuned. That made no sense. I'm horrible. Red alert! All hands to battle stations! Engage! Captain Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting. No redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to Earth. Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, without destroying them. We are dangerous. Join the two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month, the freaks will bring you two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and more. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987 and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called News from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, 
I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday... So, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And we're back. And as I'm going to skip emails today, because I really don't want to bore my co-host with uh, emails written to this show, uh, specifically addressed me, we're going to jump right into our coverage of Green Lantern number 96. And this one was cover dated March 1998, it was released on July or January 7th, 1998. Uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics is the source for that information. The cover price was $1.95 US and $2.75 Canada, and the title was Three of a Kind Part 1. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Paul Pelletier, guest inker was John Lowe, colorist was Alex Blyert and Rob Rowe and Ian Hannon. Three colorists, okay. Letter was Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor was Dana Curtin, and editor was Kevin Dooley. Our story opens as the Expositional News Network Radio Division, copyright Michael Bailey, 2009, all rights reserved, describes the formalities of what's going on in the scene. It appears that three quote-unquote super-criminals have broken into one of Saddam Hussein's ultra-secret weapons storehouse, killed a bunch of elite Republican guards, and made off with the supposed quote-unquote doomsday weapon. But as the so-called quote-unquote supervillains are none other than Hatchet, Heatwave, and Sonar, chances are that the threat of the Doomsday Weapon should be comparable to the threat of the villains. Meanwhile, on the Justice, Justice League Watchtower, situated on the Earth's moon, Wally West, a.k.a. The Flash, and Connor Hawk, a.k.a. Green Arrow, await the arri arrival of their traveling companion Kyle Rayner, a.k.a. Green Lantern. After explaining to the Martian Manhunter that the three of them are taking a trip on an Alaskan cruise ship, Cal teleports in and says his lateness was due to turning in an illustration for a magazine job of his. Wally quips about lame excuses, but before Kyle and Wally can get into a shouting match, Connor calms them down and corrals them back into the teleporter to head down to the dock. As luck would have it, they've already missed the boat. And as they wanted to make this an actual no-superpowers vacation, it looks like Connor is out a lot of cash for the cruise for the tickets. Thankfully, Kyle rings up a hover skiff to bring them to the boat, where they craftily sneak on. Well, craftily might not be the right word, as the trio is caught by the cruise director, Julie, as they board the ship. Kyle tries to work the Rainer charms on Julie, but she seems more awkward into the awkwardly naive Connor, something that Wally and Kyle just can't understand. Later that night, Kyle is lost in his own thoughts out on the deck of the ship, thinking about his relationship with Donna, his new but close friends, and his new responsibilities. But his meandering is interrupted by Wally telling him to check out the Northern Lights, something so spectacular even his ring couldn't replicate it. Wally strikes up a conversation with Kyle about Jade being his new roomie, and Kyle says that even though he's seen her totally naked, <laughs> they're no more than just good friends. While this conversation is going on, Jade is being teleported into a 
mysterious portal that just happened to appear in Kyle's apartment in New York City. Cutting back to Alaska, Kyle tells Wally that he's still pining for Donna, and not the fjords, and Wally admits that when he was a kid, he had a crush on Wonder Girl as well. But with the sun going down and temperatures dropping, the trio moves into moves the conversation inside, but not before they ask Connor about his love life. And this is where Connor says he might have made the beast with two backs before, but he's not certain if it counts if you're doing it with a ghost. Yeah, so that happened. As the three amigos belly up to the bar for beers and club soda, they are approached by three groons who claim that they are sitting in their seats. Ever the hothead, Wally prepares to start something, but Kyle tries to keep their vacation superheroics free. But that might not be in the cards, as Connor realizes that one of the goons was Hatchet, the enforcer from the GLGA The Next Generation issues. At the same time, the villains are seeing that the trio of kids that they just ousted were actually JLA members. And with their hand force, the villains spring into action, taking control of the bridge of the ship. But Wally, Connor, and Kyle are hip to their jive and decide to engage in some international waters level of fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights observed. The heroes are gaining the upper hand until Sonar threatens to blast a hole in the ship, endangering all on board. Uncertain that they could save everyone, the trio stands down, allowing Hatchet to go downstairs and check on the weapon that they are transporting the stasis-chambered body of Dr. Polaris. go with Green Lantern number 96. What do we have on uh, general thoughts for this, gentlemen? This uh, this storyline, and this issue in particular, uh, but this storyline is everything that was right with DC at this time period for me. And I say that as somebody who is completely biased towards this era of DC, so I, I'm not really being all that objective, and I will totally cop to that fact that I'm not being objective in the slightest. Uh, well, I don't. I, I just can't. I just can't help it. <laughs> I don't disagree with you at all. I, this is exactly what made DC great at this time. You had three interesting characters who were the legacies of their prior characters. Mm-hmm. DC had an idea. It seemed at this time that DC was ready to expand its universe and move on and keep growing. And I'm not complaining about the new direction of DC. I'm saying at this time, it looked like they really wanted to do something new with their characters and were more than willing to take parts of the past, move forward, move in a new direction and tell new stories with new characters in these old familiar roles. And uh, yes, this is a great example of all three of these quote unquote legacy characters getting together and having a really good storyline. What about you, Dave? Uh, I'm. I love this story. It was the first time I had encountered possibly uh, Connor Hawk. I think it was um, during my read through of the various different uh, Flash series. But I kind of wanted to read more about it and never got actually around to it. Uh, I did eventually jump into the Oliver Queen stuff when he came back, but. There was just something about the whole legacy thing that actually made me want to read 
the other ones. I did actually do uh, the Kyle stuff after I finished with Wally, but it's it's kind of weird looking back on something with everyone having been there at the time and I'm just coming in afterwards and going, oh, that's how it was then. And it's kind of, by the time I got into it, it all changed and, you know... Uh, I need no, to stop using you know as well. <laughs> no, it is great that uh, these characters are able to be portrayed in this book so well. I mean, it's it's it, this is a this is a story that actually could have featured the original characters. It could have featured Ollie. It could have featured Hal, and it could have featured Barry in here, and the yeah, dynamic definitely. would have been the same. And it would have been uh, you know they could have been you know up against generic Green Lantern and. Uh, Green Arrow and Flash villains from that time, but they moved it forward. They've done it with uh, the characters in time, and it just really works here. Well, what was impressive, though, for me is that Mars in this issue wrote it for two audiences. He wrote it for new people picking up Green Lantern that may have only been reading The Flash or may have only been reading Green Arrow, which might have been two very different audiences now that I think about it. But anyways, that, that's that's a tangent for another time. Uh, you know, wrote it for those people to kind of explain who all these characters were, who Kyle is, if this is your first real experience with Kyle and all that, but also make it feel organic in the dialogue. There's a giant info dump right in the middle of this issue where Kyle is sitting there talking with Wally about everything that's going on. But to me, it just felt like a couple guys getting together and chatting about what's been going on with their lives and everything like that. And then you also have the added dynamic of, you know, when, when Kyle and Connor first teamed up, Connor's sex life came up for some reason. <laughs> it, it was it was a popular thing, I think, around this time to talk about Connor's sex life, if I'm remembering correctly. And but. Then, you know, you have Wally who's settled down. You have Kyle who's in this nebulous area because, you know, the thing with Donna was unfortunately over. And I almost want to say thank you very much, John Byrne, but that seems pithy <laughs> at this at this date. And then I'm quoting somebody that apparently Shag overheard in his comic shop years ago. So well, I don't want to get into that either. But you, but, but you have, you know, he's broken up with Donna and things are kind of going somewhere with 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 Jade, but not really. And I love that he points out, he goes, I'd be dating the daughter of the original Green Lantern. And and, and that, that's an issue. And it makes perfect sense as well that it would be an issue, because not only, you know, is your is the father of your girlfriend, you know, somebody who's in law enforcement, but you're carrying on his legacy rather and you're not meaning to do it. It's just how things work out. And then you have Connor, who may have had sex with a ghost. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I would say that counts. Uh, j just to throw that out there really quick, I, I'm of the opinion that it counted. Uh, you know, hey, whatever, you know, you know. See, uh, you know, you take it wherever you can get it. I guess. I mean, it, it it does it does take one of the elements of Andrew Dice Clay's uh, requirements for a mate, uh, that being the heartbeat. But <laughs> you know. I I, I I think it counts. I do. I honestly do. I, I think if we're looking to Andrew Dice Clay for uh, romantic advice, we're we we've we've kind of missed the boat. Uh, I guess pun intended. 
Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, was the covers to these issue. And this is one of these kind of neat things where we've had covers before that sort of link together, but I can't remember how many times we've had three-part covers that link together. And this is a really good one. I think the artists this time are, um, let's see, Rodolfo DiMaggio and Bob Campanella from the uh, Green Arrow book. But it is, uh, there are a series of really great covers that each uh, feature the main characters for the book uh, doing various different things and rescuing these people from the sinking boat. So I guess they're not burying the lead at what's going to happen. The boat's going to sink at some time. But uh, I really like the covers. Uh, personally, I think my favorite one is the Green Arrow one, simply because Green Arrow's fighting a shark, and that is always awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He doesn't need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that is a big old mouth on that shark. Wow, you can see right down its gullet. You know, it's funny. These covers, when, when this first came out, because I was buying both Green Lantern and Flash at the time, I was not buying Green Arrow. But when these covers came out, they actually kind of turned me off a little bit. Because the bright skyline behind them for some reason, I can't explain this. This is just one of those things where you see something and you feel a certain way and you have no idea why. But I thought I was like, oh, this is just going to be a wacky caper. You know, I, do I really want to read this? And then it turned out to be like a, you know, until the very end. And even at the end, uh, overall, it just turned out to be a pretty, I wouldn't say a dark story, but, you know, some, some serious stuff goes down through the course of the storyline. So... You really couldn't judge the the book by by that by those covers, but on the other hand, it's 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 a great. I'm a fan of linking covers, and it's it, to be fair, I, I think uh, Superman, the people at Superman saw this and said, "Oh, we can do better than that." Because with a couple months later, the Millennium Giants crossover happened, oh, yes. and all of those covers form one image. Mm -hmm. Now I, I, I'm remembering that now. Yes. Yeah, I'm just disappointed I don't actually have a physical copy of this one. I've oh, got really? the other two, okay, but I just can't seem to get this one. I would like to actually have it right in front of me to kind of see the full cover. It's it's nice. Uh, I think Kyle looks good on this cover. Um, I would, you know, personally, and it's this is just me. I would have liked to have seen Pelletier do this, but Dimaggio and uh, Campanella are, are do a good enough job. I've just become such a fan of uh, Pelletier in here. But uh, saying that, moving on to the book, uh, I thought it was kind of odd in the beginning, the uh, villains uh, trying to get the uh, super weapon or whatever the uh, MacGuffin device was at the beginning, that they actually referenced, you know, Iraq and the Republican guards and Saddam Hussein. Because that's... I mean, it's not uncommon for DC books at the time. Usually they do an analog like Quarak. But yeah. uh, the fact that they actually used um, real live uh, <laughs> nations that we are actually kind of had tense relationships with was kind of surprising for me. And, you know, I, I guess it, it makes the book feel a bit more real. I honestly took that as more of a... I wouldn't say concession, but something kind of more towards it being including Green Arrow. Because in the very little bit of Green Arrow that I've read, it seemed like, and especially when Grell was writing the, uh, the Oliver Queen Green Arrow, it was very much rooted in the real world. 
Like, the, you know, the places they went existed. And I was expecting Quarak too, so seeing Saddam Hussein, especially since it's been like 10 years since he was captured mm-hmm. now, uh, was kind of weird. And, it, and to be fair, it dates the story. But... I don't know. I actually kind of liked it. I I, I kind of dug it. I dug it that it wasn't Quarak because as much as I like Quarak or or what uh, Greg Rucka would eventually come up with Umek, which actually stands for unnamed Middle Eastern country, <laughs> uh, which is something that I absolutely loved after I found out. You know, that that puts it in this world. You know, it's it's like when you when you watching the Batman film or reading Dark Knight Returns or any of the other places where this sort of thing would come up, you know, you'd have Corto Maltese, which kind of stood for, you know, uh, you know, unnamed South American type island country that we're having political difficulties with. That's cool. And, 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 and it's very DC, but sometimes it is kind of neat. Like, Hey, we're on front street here that this is the Republican guard. And now in this very serious and real life situation, we have goofy version of Sonar. We have Heatwave, who's just back from the dead. And we have Hatchet, who is so 90s. The 90s call him 90s. <laughs> you know, just, I, just busting in and, and taking this. I loved it. it. It made for a great intro. Yeah. Yeah. Hatchet with his uh, bicycle helmet and Cylon visors is really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Yeah, the dude who I forget his name, but the dude from the the, the first guy Kyle Rayner fought oh. back in Green Arrow fifty one. I mean Green Lantern fifty one looks at this guy and goes, "Dude, you are so nineties." I want to say it was Ohm. Ohm, that yeah, that's it. right. <laughs> oh, he was he was awful, but yeah, yeah, it's not it's not the high level of uh, Green Lantern. It's not it's not Sinestro that they're taking down. But I think for this kind of storyline, having sort of B-list villains completely works for me. I'm wondering on page three, panel five, when uh, the villains finally go to uh, get the secret weapon, if this was actually part of the report that uh, Colin Powell presented to the UN uh, prior to the attack. In, uh, <laughs> because I, I would like to I would seriously like to see Colin Powell saying, and the Iraqi Republican Guard actually had possession of a metahuman known as Dr. Polaris, and his capability of manipulating magnetic fields is a threat to the United States. And that was perhaps the worst Colin Powell impersonation ever, so I apologize for that, uh, Mr. Powell. I wonder if part of getting the weapon ready involves getting him a decent cup of coffee after he wakes up. <laughs> I don't know if I, you know, I have never been to the uh, Arctic. My wife uh, spent some time in Alaska and it was during the summer and she said it was actually kind of chilly up there. So I, I wouldn't want to have to travel to the North Pole. That, that would be awful. Oh, I'd love it. I, I love the cold, though, because I'm kind of weird. Oh, that's... The, the scene on the JLA Tower... It made me happy on several different levels. One, you have the watchtower uh, on on the moon as this, you know, like ultra citadel representing the headquarters, uh, you know, uh, of the greatest heroes the Earth has to offer. And we're going to use that to meet up for our vacation. <laughs> That's where everyone's just going to hook up because we can then teleport to wherever we need to go. But also... JLA was huge at this time. 
I, I was reminded of this a couple years ago, just how much of a force of nature that brand was in DC over this time period. And it was really kind of a turning point for the company because during like the late eighties and most of the nineties up to this point, and even at this point, but it, the, there, there started to be some bleed over, you know, there were more like editorial fiefdoms where everyone lived in the same universe, but they were all kind of doing their own thing. The Superman people had their thing. The Batman people had their thing. You had the Flash. You had the Green Lantern. You know, they were all existing in their own little worlds, and every once in a while they would all bleed over and cross over and do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there wasn't a Justice League with the Magnificent Seven in them until this point. And when that happened, because of how it happened, it felt so organic to me as a reader that I really bought into it. So this is using that kind of bleeding over to its best, you know, to its best effect because the Martian Manhunter really didn't need to be in this issue. And yet having him there reminds you that all of these guys are part of a big team. Oh, and by the way, you should be reading that book if you're not reading that book. Or if people read JLA, liked the individual characters, and then started picking up the individual titles, this let you be, you know, like, oh, it's it, it it's John, and this is, you know, they are all are part of the team, and they're referencing that, and that's cool. So I loved that. I, just made me. This story put a big old smile on my face last night. It really did. Oh yeah, I fully agree. And one of the things that I really love, and again, I've commented on this on my show a lot, is Paul Pelletier's art, and he's he. I've mentioned that he has very anime. Uh, inferences or references but also he looks on uh, i'm looking on page five the uh sort of essence of kirby crackle is uh um cows teleporting in that's kind of mm-hmm. a neat sort of nod there and then of course uh the thing that i really like the most enjoyable thing is the as as wally and kyle start to get into it connor breaks it up and he looks like he's gonna pimp slap both of them <laughs> which is completely awesome so. And and possible because Connor could take both of these guys in a fair fight. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I do think that the art in this issue is the best of the three. Uh, I just I'm really liking Paul Pelletier, and I'm still not reading Aquaman. Is has he is he still on the current stuff? I don't know whether he's kept on after the uh, after Jeff Johns has left. I think. Uh, I know they've already come out with tw- or 26 should be coming out if it's not already at the time of this recording. And I think Pelletier is still on it with the uh, rest of the team. So the new writer is different, obviously, but uh, unfortunately I haven't been keeping up with it either. That's, that's all. I think Shag's he's continuing over. Oh, you know, cool. But, you know, the, the few issues of Aquaman that I put up, Pelletier's art in that has been just amazing. So it's great to see him sort of develop here because he's got a good uh, a good handle on the characters. And they all look, you know, not only because of their hair color and their hairstyles, but their facial features look different. So you can tell them apart individually. It's awesome. At the bottom, um, I think it's page five, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I like that throughout this issue um we have the panels being split up but occasionally they are just one picture just kind of continuing it's yeah like the, it, it's kind of panned across mm-hmm. in uh, the image uh don't know if they're going for the whole cinematic thing but it's a nice little touch that shows up fairly frequently in this one 
Well, and this is one of the things I like. I don't mind when they do cinematic sort of widescreen panels, so long as they're doing widescreen panels in the purvey of the book being read normally. I know, I know I've heard you complain about it, Michael, where they do the widescreen where you have to turn the book on its side to read it. And that to me would be annoying. This, this actually looks like it flows because you've got something happening on the left side of the frame and something happening on the right side of the thing. And it's divided in the middle and it doesn't hurt the flow of the story. I'll agree with that. Of course, we get to the uh, next page and they've missed the boat. And so they go ahead and uh, decide the best way to do it is to try and sneak on the ship, which allows uh, the sort of awkward meeting with uh, cruise director Julie, which, uh, again, I'm going to mention this because it's common in this podcast. I really like the way that Pelletier draws women, and Julie is another really, really good-looking uh, Pelletier female creation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I love and and also uh, I don't give enough credit to Mars here. Mars is doing a great job with the dialogue and setting up uh, Kyle trying to be sort of a Lothario and just getting completely shot down. And Julie, for no reason whatsoever, just glomming onto Connor. <laughs> and the you know Wally and Kyle can't get what the deal is with Connor. He just. Uh, uh, he just exudes that sort of odd charisma that I, I think that both Connor or that both Kyle and Wally would wish that they could have. Uh, it, it's kind of funny. One, I, I loved the love boat gag, uh, where you know he made Kyle makes the Julie McCoy reference, and she's like, "Yeah, I've never heard that one before," and him kind of like having to double back, but 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 being pretty smooth about it by going, "Well, yeah, I guess you have," but on on page eight, you know, she she says. Uh, yeah, you know, Julie goes, hmm, I bet you would, but you're not really my type, Mr. Rayner. I have a thing for blondes. And for 30 seconds before I read uh, the next sentence, I was just like, oh, so they're going in that direction, where she's just not into guys at all. Oh, they're not going into that direction. Why was I going into that direction? <laughs> and and I love that when... <laughs> when they're trying to explain why he has it, it's just like, it's something I inherited from my father. <laughs> like, yeah. like Oliver Queens, you know, being kind of a womanizer would somehow genetically pass on to his son. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, it's, that was his superpower. <laughs> it was his secondary superpower. Uh, it's funny that you say that because there was some talk at this time that Connor was a meta human that his skill with the bow and arrow was like super heroic. And I don't remember who brought that up. I don't think it would have been Chuck Dixon. Cause that doesn't sound like something Dixon would have done, but there was some kind of like underlying, like there, there's maybe something preternatural about his, his abilities, which I never really bought into. I just, I like the fact that, you know, on an earth where Batman can do, pretty much anything he wants physically outside of, you know, flying under his own power or lifting something really heavy, you know, you just have a guy that's that good, you know, and, and he's so good that it, it just goes, it's almost like a savant type of situation. So, yeah, I don't think you need to fall into the metahuman trope at every time. Sometimes you can just get people who are so driven 
like you referenced Batman, that they hone their skills to such a level that it looks that way. You know, having them have a metahuman gene just seems like a cop out and it kind of diminishes the fact that they've actually done this on their own. So yeah, that's disappointing. Um, I really love the artwork and especially the coloring. I don't really comment on the coloring, but on the next page, page nine, the whole look of the, uh, see it uh at sundown mm-hmm. the shading oh, and, you know it's just it's just beautiful and it's uh, uh kyle also has a very 90s jacket the sort of bluish purple it's not quite members only it looks like kind of a letter jacket type thing but it's really nice and uh, I, I i like i said i don't regularly comment on the coloring but it just captures so well the sort of feeling of you know, sundown on the ocean. That I, I like it here, and it's a fun scene between the three guys. I love that Connor's the one that says, "You know, you can learn a lot from older people." And Wally's response <laughs> to that was like the hokey pokey, and then immediately backtracks because of his admiration for Jay Garrick. Again, it's just all these little this coloring of these characters and showing them out of costume before the action really starts. You know, we have a little digression scene where. Jade is sucked into another dimension. And what I love about that is that they don't stop the story for that. Mm. All of the, all of the panel, all of the, the captions are the conversation that Wally and Kyle are having about Jade. We're just seeing what's happening to her. And we just happen to hit at a really bad time for, for Jade. And it does set up what's going to happen in Green Lantern, but it doesn't, Sometimes when you have these crossovers, they'll have these subplot things that just completely bring the plot to a grinding halt. So it's like, okay, guys, for a second, we're going to show you what's going on in here, but now back to the crossover. And they didn't do that here, and I was really impressed with that. Yeah, this was this felt completely natural, and it is specifically because we get Mars' uh, dialogue running throughout it and allowing Pelletier to draw it. So there is no real breakup in the flow of the story. Um... I think Pelletier does a good job or a good job of drawing the uh the sort of original Titans. Uh Aqualad, you know, well I guess Aqualad's costume was kind of goofy anyway, but <laughs> you know, I I like uh I like the fact that Wally says that everyone pretty much had a crush on Wonder Girl and I think that's uh not an uncommon uh feeling amongst uh, people who read the Titans during that time. Absolutely. I I honestly, you know, I think that was more of a reflection of the audience and the actual characters, but um, I've known so many people whose first comic book crush was Donna Troy that uh, it makes it just makes perfect sense to me. But that leads us to page 13, where we get the awkward part of the book, where Connor mentions that his one relationship with a female might have been with a ghost. And... Yeah. Does anyone, uh, you know, uh, like I said, I wasn't reading too much Green Arrow at the time. Does anyone know uh, what the storyline references? I do. I was disappointed when I looked at the wrong issue. I thought it said 118. It's got an awesome dinosaur on the cover. I thought there's going to be dinosaurs, but it's 113. Um, Went back, had a look. Uh, Basically, it seems to be either a ghost or some kind of Brigadoon type thing. Um, Because he goes, he's delivering a package. Um that some guy died trying to deliver. Uh, they go to this place um, in the mountains somewhere. He meets this girl, gets it on with the girl, delivers the package, sees the dead guy, 
um, who's magically appeared here, and then the whole thing disappears. And I think she mistakes him for someone else, or seems to mistake him for someone else for the entire time before calling him by his real name when she disappears into the mists after he wakes up lying in the ground where there's no city. God, the number of times that ha- that happened while in, I was in college is just disturbing. So I, I know just... I, I was I was I'm glad I'm not the only one that that happened to. Yeah. I mean, every, well, you know, you're driving out in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. You see this farmhouse. There's this really hot chick. You get it on with her, and you wake up in the morning. And wait, that was a different experience <laughs> that involved me being strung. I'm not. Oh God, I really don't want to talk about uh, that. Let's move don't on. worry, I'll edit this out. Uh, okay, <laughs> done. He should really just be thankful that it wasn't just Whoopi Goldberg being possessed by someone. Oh, dear Lord. Who wants to sleep with Whoopi Goldberg? Oh. Demi Murr? Oh, I guess so, yeah. That's even more disturbing now that I think about it. Oh, yeah. I'm going to move on, and this will be a question for you, uh, Dave. Um, on page 14, we get, we don't have, you know, we get Kyle giving a little story about a uh, previous girlfriend here, and, uh, then we cut to that uh that fourth panel where uh Wally says that he had a girlfriend named Leslie. Now is this a character that was uh, brought up in the uh, Flash run before this or is uh, is this just one of these people that's kind of referenced for just this book? I think it's just referencing for this book. I haven't encountered her. Um but it's entirely possible it happened uh Teen Titans wise. Okay. It could it could have happened before I actually saw it. Um but yeah, I haven't seen her. Um, I think basically he's kind of shying away from girlfriends between, um, I can't remember her name, but it's Chunk's girlfriend. Oh yeah. She ends up being and eventually when he meets Linda. So haven't encountered her, but doesn't mean that she there, there like, wasn't, there wasn't a, there wasn't a Leslie in the, in the Wally West series proper, uh, to, to my memory either. Uh, and I don't think because he was with Francis mostly before that. Yeah, he was with Francis Kane, and he had a thing for Raven, but that turned out to be something that Raven did to him, basically, not just a you know, not so much a, um, not so much you know, he had legitimate feelings for her. She manipulated him into having feelings for her, so he would join the team, and then they dealt with that for like three years, and. There was a alien girl back when he got his uh, yellow and red costume in that issue. <laughs> Strangely that enough, it's... Yeah. Sorry, it's they, issue 135. Yeah, and they make a joke about that in one of the Secret Origins annuals where Wally is talking to his therapist, which was actually a really good story. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I, I just took this as them just... For all I know, these are... Ex girlfriends, uh, ex girlfriend names of Chuck Dixon and Ron Mars and you know <laughs> Mark Miller and, and and Grant Morrison that they all just threw in there for color. So, so who yeah. did you? What's the name of the girl you dated in high school? Her name was Leslie. Good, Leslie. I'll write that down. That makes sense. <laughs> but I do love on these on these last few panels just the way that Pelletier draws them and the different facial expressions and the dynamic of these three characters. These look like three young 20-something guys in the 90s with different personalities who are just getting along together. And the look up on that third panel at the bottom of Kyle just laughing at the uh, sort of offhand comment that Connor made. It's just 
it's just brilliant and it uh, like you said it brings a smile to my face as well um it's it's really amazing but then the next page we get the the introduction of i swear to god and it's going to be more apparent in the flash issue but i think heat wave is supposed to be grant morrison he looks <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry he you know especially in the and i'll point it out uh when we get to the flash issue but there is a point where he's sitting at the t- the trial table spoilers and it looks like morrison it looks like they drew grant morrison from this time period so i don't know whether they were trying to reference the artists but uh yeah heatwave looks like morrison and i'm i'm going made, to stick to that would have made more sense to have the mirror master of this time period mm. look like grant morrison considering he was scottish but uh there you go you know what do i know no i i <laughs> Here's the thing about this scene that I absolutely love is you totally have to buy in to the willing suspension disbelief of it. Okay. Heat wave out of his costume looks like a normal guy. Hatchet outside of his costume looks like Robert De Niro. Sonar, you can't hide that. That's that's there. You know, when you put in a baseball cap on this dude's head, it's not really going to, <laughs> I'm sorry, that doesn't hide. It's just like, do you have a? Does that itch? I mean, what's what's going on there? I mean, they they, yeah. they don't make any effort to hide all of that crap on his face. It's like, hey, if he still had his hair, it would be fine. Yeah, if he if he was still if he was still still hair metal sonar, it would have been fine. But no, he's got the big goofy plate and handsome. So I can see someone coming and walk. Hey, how are you? Oh my god, half your skull is gone. What the hell is that? <laughs> I just yeah. love he's wearing a hat with PP on it. I wonder whose initials they are. Uh, maybe Paul Pelletier. Maybe that's but, just a... so. But I just love that they run into each other in the bar and pretty much suss out immediately who everyone is. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's a here's a bone of contention again, and it comes up, uh, and I'm you know this is coming up in the next episode. There's a bone of contention here that I've always had is that people can recognize the ring on Kyle's hand <laughs> at certain times, and then it not recognize it at other times. And Sonar here says that he's seen he saw the ring on Kyle's hand, and he's had it you know poked in his face far too often. I thought the idea was that when Kyle had the ring on and he wasn't in the uh, Green Lantern guys, it was non-existent. But now it seems to be existent. And it, it just frustrates me that we don't get a definitive yes or no. When he's not Green Lantern, it's gone. When he is Green Lantern, it's there. So it, it, it kind of bugs me that uh, Sonar is able to see the ring. But that's just... I, th- yeah. I think it would be more... Yeah... You know, it, it brings Sonar into, hey, I recognize that guy. But also, I think it would have been more appropriate that's like, hey, that's Wally West. Because his, his identity yeah. was public at this point. So it would be more likely to recognize him and then assume that the two guys with him are is Green Lantern. It's just like, that's Wally West. You, oh, the Flash? You know, that guy that's with him has black hair. You know, the Green Lantern that beat the piss out of me mm-hmm. had that hairstyle. Huh. So, <laughs> but I just like that they go from let's play this low key to putting a gun in the captain's face in the space of a page. <laughs> I mean, there there is absolutely no there there's no real conversation about what's going to go on, and it leads to 
I think the as as Rob and Shag would call it the kapow moment of the issue, mm-hmm. uh, page eighteen, where when you look at the top of the page, it's this dramatic shot of Green Arrow, Green Lantern, and Flash standing there looking all money, you know, ready to 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 beat your ass, and then you're like, he's straddling a cannon. <laughs> I was gonna say he's just a big sheriff fan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm certain he's going to turn back time with that thing between his legs. Yes, there is. He's going to turn back something, and it's not going to feel good. But yeah, that is perhaps the most phallic image in the uh, in the book. There, well, I mean, it, it's like for like when you when you when you cut it off, it's just like awesome. I mean, the flash looks great, and it's kind of interesting because yeah, this would be this would be kind of the the Speed Force costume that he's using. It's only its third appearance, the third issue that's had it in it. Yeah, and 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 that there was a big thing, and and um, Dave knows this better than anybody because he's the Flash expert on this on this call. But there was a big thing when Barry came back, quote unquote, that Wally had the white white pupils thing going on because that's just the costume he was wearing. And Barry made the comment, "Well, I always figured if they could see your eyes, they trust you more." And after Morrison came on to the Morrison and Miller came on for that year that I really didn't care for, honestly, at the time, I was, I was very upset that Wade and Augustine had left the book for a little while, but that's entirely beside the point. Um, that when they, when they brought in this speed force costume, it did look more like the classic silver age outfit more so than the early nineties flash outfit. Unless I'm completely misremembering those issues. Well, they do reverse the flash symbol on me. They make the lightning bolt go the wrong way around. It annoys me fairly frequently because they don't always keep it consistent. Even though he's meant to be wearing Barry's costume for the entire time. But yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Um, My only note at at the end of this is uh, on page 21 where they kind of diminish the backgrounds and i know it might be for aesthetic reasons and to kind of uh make it more dramatic but why on that second panel on page 21 are kyle wally and connor standing in an alternate dimension about ready to fall into a portable hall <laughs> i don't get guilty, that guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just it's just a bizarre uh a, a bizarre design choice uh, that they just removed all the backgrounds and maybe it was just a little rush job because the the rest of the time the paneling and all the details in it are really good but just for these couple of panels here there's no background so I don't get it you know on these last pages it's really funny when I when I cracked this book out I realized one I had not read this story since it came out so it's been like a good 15 years pretty much so I had forgotten, you know, and it's been a good, like, 15 years since I've really gone through the entirety of Kyle's time as Green Lantern. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all in my head, but certain particulars have kind of just erased with, uh, with new information coming in. And when I flip this book open, I'm like, what is up with Guy Gardner? Why is he all messed up in the, oh, that's sonar. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. I really need to reread this era. So. If you're rereading it to try and figure out sonar, I would say, you know, you can find other things to do. Sonar. 
Oh, it's not just for Sonar. It would be only for Kyle. Sonar okay. would just be a yeah. Sonar would just be a happy accident with that. Well, so. I don't know how happy it would be, but there you go. Um, did anyone have anything else on this issue? Just uh, just the ads that were in the book um, reminded me how much I loved this era. There is a JLA ad that's also in the Green Arrow. Is it in the Flash as well? On the inside I don't cover. See, no, I think... the the. D- hey, Affleck was in the bomb and Phantoms, yo. Yes. Um, but <laughs> that, was... uh, that joke had to be said. I took one for the team. You're, You're all welcome. Um, <laughs> there is a JLA ad. Uh, what does it take to join their ranks? And it's a nice mishmash of the cover to the first issue to, or the the cover that was on actually issue five, I believe it was. Yeah, I think it was five because they were doing the recruiting drive at the time. But this is actually from right when they kicked open the gates more for the JLA, and it went beyond the Magnificent Seven, and Steel joined. And Huntress joined, and Catwoman was on the thing. It was when they introduced Prometheus. This was a huge time for JLA. Simultaneously, the Avengers were doing pretty much the same thing, where they had just come back from the whole Heroes Reborn thing. They had a three-issue storyline, and in the fourth issue, they finally set who was going to be in the Avengers, and it was pretty much the same month that the JLA was announcing its roster change. And since I was reading both books, it was, I remember me and uh, the guy was about to, uh, we were about to become roommates because I was, this was when I was not going to be living with my sister anymore. We were just all excited, like five year olds, that there was recruitment drives in the superhero team titles that we were reading. It's just like, oh, this is so great. And this whole issue is just all the ads in this is just a reflection of that. I mean, you have the uh well well the Hercules and Xena animated movie ad. Oh Lord, know. that no. was awful. But um but you have <laughs> the best Batman ever now on pay per view, Bill Clyde. <laughs> Oh, no longer no. working for NBC TV. <laughs> but you have, uh, I remember that Green Lantern statue coming out. You have the Heart of Darkness story uh, miniseries, which mm-hmm. was actually really good. And you also have uh, that Wonder Woman Secret Files and Origins on the back inside cover. And this is when I was totally immersed. I was reading all of the... JLA-related titles at this point. I was reading Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Aquaman, all of them. And just this just brought back so many happy memories of that time period. <sighs> I really appreciate you asking me to be on this one, because this made me happy. Oh, not a problem. Well, I hope you're also happy that I can uh, allow you to uh, do the synopsis for the next book. And ah. after we take this little break, if everyone's good, we're all good? Yep. Okay, after we take this break... We're going to come back, and Mike is going to give uh, his synopsis of the next issue in this three-of-a-kind storyline, Green Arrow number 130. So stay tuned, folks. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to, from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death-and-return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. 
Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But from Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast dot com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. And we are back to take a look at the second part of the storyline, Green Arrow number 130. And, Mr. Michael Bailey, I give the floor to you. Well, this is Three of a Kind, Part 2 of 3. It was released on January 14th, 1998. Chuck Dixon was the writer. Will Rosado was the penciler. Sal Buscema was the inker. Lee Luridge, or Luca Ridge, was colorist. Jameson, I'm assuming not Jenna, uh, was the separator. John Costanza was the letterer. Darren Vincenzo was running just to keep up. This is Death at the Top of the World Part 2, I believe. As I think the Flash was Part 3. Sonar, looking all warbly with cool, like, kind of effects and stuff, tells everyone to stay calm and not panic before getting bored with that idea and unleashing his powers like a madman, yelling for everyone to not stay calm and to panic. Heatwave reminds him of their situation, which is nothing like the Bonnie situation from Pulp Fiction, involving an on-ice Dr. Polaris in the lower part of the ship and three members of the freaking Justice League of America holding their water in case Heatwave and company try to sink the boat. Meanwhile, our heroes are busy hanging out with Hatchet, and by hanging out, I mean he is keeping watch over them and they are busting his chops something fierce. All of the banter allows Kyle to create a camera on a remote-controlled truck construct, which is why Kyle was awesome, to go and check out what Sonar and Heatwave are doing. Sonar wonders if Heatwave's plans will work, with Heatwave uh, figuring that since Dr. Polaris gets his powers from the electromagnetic field that covers the Earth, that if they get him to Magnetic North, he will amp up to full capacity. Kyle sees all of this and tells the others that Dr. Polaris involved. This kind of kicks them into action, and using Julie as a distraction, Kyle and Connor head to take care of the Polaris situation, which is, again, different from the Bonnie situation from Pulp Fiction. Is there a sign on my lawn that says, Comatose Supervillain Storage? Do you see that sign? The Flash knocks the seven bells out of Hatchet. As Julie heads the Flash to where the passenger are, Green Lantern and Green Arrow are confronted by Sonar, who does a fantastic job of displaying what his powers can do. Kyle tells Connor to get to the cargo hold and keep Heatwave from bringing Polaris into the fight. Reluctantly, Connor does as Kyle asks. 
The Flash tells the captain that he better start abandoning ship as Connor starts uh, as Connor stalks Heatwave. Well, <laughs> maybe 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 stalk is the wrong word here. As Connor sneaks up on Heatwave and kicks him square in the spine. As Kyle continues to hold off sonar, though just barely, the Flash makes sure the passengers all have life vests. He tells the captain to keep the SOS going in case the worst happens. As Heatwave continues to have a bad time with Connor and Hatchet tries to pull himself together, Sonar believes he finally has Green Lantern on the ropes. What he doesn't notice is the giant bell construct Kyle has made, which takes Sonar out rather handily. Hatchet goes through several guns before settling on one that he thinks is big enough because he has issues elsewhere in his life. He uses that giant weapon to blow a hole into the bottom of the ship. Kyle and Wally figure out what is going on pretty quick as Heatwave makes a run for it. Connor is in shock and yells that all of the passengers will die because of Heatwave. A voice behind him corrects this by saying that the people won't die because of Heatwave. They will die at the hands of a very conscious Dr. Polaris. To be continued. Yeah, this was the most action-heavy issue. There was, and I think it's very appropriate because Chuck Dixon, as we may have referenced before, is amazing at doing action-heavy heavy issues. Um, I love the hell out of this. This was uh, the it, it all flowed together really well. The artwork, it's not as good as Pelletier's, but it's passable. I don't have any problems with it. But uh, overall, I thought this was a uh, a good second part of it, and like I said, a very good action-heavy storyline. Absolutely. I mean, this it's the middle chapter, so the plot gets progressed a little further. But mainly, it is you know the we have the whole setup of everyone talking and getting together and all that. Now we have to have the big fight scenes, so that uh, it worked for me on that level. The art. It was a little jarring going to the to, to this particular art team. I'm not saying that I dislike them because it really fits with Green Arrow at this point. And Kyle and, and Wally look great. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to suggest any different on that. It's just, you know, after Paul Pelletier had that kind of, as, as I think Dave said it, you know, kind of that anime look. You know, th- this is more of a kind of a realistic uh, kind of one step beyond Vertigo, I would say. Especially, like, when you look at page 12, the way Heatwave is drawn with Connor stalking up behind him, that, you know, that's not something we saw in the first chapter of this. And again, that's not a criticism. It's just, a, hey, these two are different, uh, which is a little, you know, not jarring, but kind of a kind of a weird thing when you're reading the story itself. But, no, I just love that everybody gets a good moment here. The Flash, my favorite with the Flash was when he just basically just pummels Hatchet. Oh yeah. <laughs> again and again and again on page eight. You know, can you outrun this? Or then he's just wailing on him. And Kyle gets his moment with the bell. And Connor not only physically owns Heatwave, he demolishes him 
emotionally as well, calling him second rate. And just, I was just like, wow, Connor, you must be mad. This doesn't seem like you. Yeah, I personally love the flash scene with myself, but that's also kind of obvious for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, I guess I, you, you are kind of genetically predisposed at this point, aren't you? Yeah, uh, only problem is they get the freaking lightning bolt upside down. But that's beside the point. <laughs> it's a personal problem. I will get oh, over it eventually. Hey, hey, hey. I when Shane Davis first drew Superman, it drove me nuts that he kept putting the symbol on the belt. So I am I'm totally with you on something really kind of small detail wise, just drives <coughs> you nuts to the point where you're distracted from the rest of the story. But it's that picture is so awesome with that one little touch. It's the right way around for the rest of it. I'm pretty sure of it. But just when he's pummeling Hatchet, it, it's slightly distracting for me. I. Still love the uh, lightning effect flying off the uh, various bits of yellow for the entire thing. It's one of the things I love about this era. Um, I don't think we get it that much anymore. Um, I can't honestly remember, but I, it, it is one of my favorite things about Wally West's Flash. Just the extra added lightning. Mm-hmm. Everyth- everything's better with more lightning. Mm. Except if you're being struck by it. It's probably not the best thing, but... <laughs> You know what I mean. Um, and the, as you said, one of the best bits in the issue is where um, Connor is stalking um, Heatwave. I just love the little touch that he seems to wait for Heatwave to put his gun away before attacking, giving him the upper hand. It's it's not completely blatant, but it's it's a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll agree with that. All the characters mm-hmm. in here, you know, the, they were smart. And, you know, Connor, you know, expectingly would be one of the smarter ones because he has to fight hand to hand. He doesn't have super speed to help him out or he doesn't have a magic ring, which allows him to do whatever he can think of. He's got to use his own physicality to take him down. So him waiting until Heatwave puts up the weapon that could you know, basically melt him is is a clever thing on his part. Um, I've got a little nitpick. What the heck happened to Julie? Because in the last issue, yeah, she was in her she was in her cruise director outfit, and she was blonde, if I recall. And yes. Now in this issue, <laughs> she's like a brunette or a redhead, and she's uh, you know, she's in like a a, a sort of brown blouse, so she's changed out of it. And, you know, I don't know. Most of the times, I've been on a couple of cruises, and usually when there are you know, people who are part of the cruise, uh, the you know the the cruise crew, they are constantly in you know their uniforms. They don't ever change out of it, and especially you would think this would be you know because the last time we saw her, I think, was on the the captain's deck, you know, where Hatchet and everyone were taking the ship hostage. So. When did she get a chance to dye her hair and change her uniform? So that's weird. But uh, well, off-panel is where anything can happen. That is, you know, I'll give some you... of the best things happen off-panel. On uh, page nine, I don't know why. You know, I can understand Kyle ringing up a couple of uh, you know earmuffs or uh, head headphones to sort of dampen the noise of sonar. But why the phone booth? 
is it not a soundproof booth? Like, they would stick the contestants on various game shows in so that they can't hear what the other people are saying? Uh, that Cause... makes, that makes sense, except on the, uh, next page, if you look on page 10 there, where Sonar is blasting them and they're getting knocked back, at the top of the booth it says Con Air. Is it not On Air? Oh, On Air. Well, I've even, now you've completely destroyed my theory of it. Yeah, that, no, that, now then that makes sense. Yeah. There's no phone as well. That's true. No, he's just really fond of Nicolas Cage movies. Oh, well, yeah. who wouldn't be? You know, put the bunny, put the bunny back. Now, why didn't you put the bunny back? <laughs> I, I will give credit to Kyle, the bell construct thing. That was actually some of uh, the more intelligent uh, ring constructs that he's done through that. And, you know, the fact that... Uh, a lot of times, I don't think Kyle, you know, Kyle is very inventive in his uh, constructs, but a lot of times he doesn't really think of how to use them effectively. I mean, he'll come up with something elaborate like a like a knight with a long ponytail on a horse jousting at someone, and it'll look really cool, but it may not be the most effective thing to use against his villain. Here he comes up with something that actually really works against him, using the vibrations of sonar to effectively take him out on his own. So I thought that was great. And uh, yeah, like you said, everyone gets their own moment to shine in this issue. I'm also picturing that happening kind of like the Wile E. Coyote cartoons, you know, something Mm -hmm. similar. And is that meant to be the Liberty Bell? There's a crack in it, I've just noticed. More than likely in that case, if if it's uh yeah, it's supposed to be the Liberty Bell. Uh, yeah, it makes it supposed I, I to no Liberty Bells. <laughs> and it's got a little Green Lantern I'm looking on uh page seventeen. Uh it's got a little Green Lantern band aid on it where the crack yeah. is. So that yeah. works. That, that's cute. He seems to brand everything, make sure everyone knows it's a Green Lantern construct. Yeah, well... Because you know, it couldn't be anyone else's. That's true. Um, I do like on page 19, where uh, Hatchet is summoning up the guns, you essentially get the 90s encapsulated here. <laughs> I need a really big gun. Where basically you go from, oh, Punisher level of guns, to Cable level of guns, to Youngblood level of guns. So... <laughs> You've got the entire entirety of the '90s here, so this is just this is just awesome. He also apparently went to the same place Julie did because wasn't his hair black last issue? I don't know. Oh, it was silver. Oh, yeah, it was actually. You know, yeah, you're right. He was had a sort of silver, you know, grayish type hair. So yeah, there are coloring issues, but you know, thank goodness he's got the you know RoboCop bicycling helmet off. That's always a good thing. But yeah, this was. Go ahead, Mike. Is it is it me or did they cast Bill Bixby as Doctor Polaris on that last page, with his like complete seventies hair and everything? (laughs) It does. The eyes are red, not white, though. That's true. So you know he's not going to uh, change into the Jade Goliath. So that's disappointing. Hmm. But yeah, the whole idea of taking Doctor Polaris to the North Pole in hopes that you know he'll be your friend it's not the best you yeah. know storyline but uh, it brought you all the way up there you, you want to hang out <laughs> we, we want to work for you so we brought you up here you know, this is kind of like Parcheesi. this is kind of <laughs> like the new mutants saving cable and then asking him to be their leader because i know my qualifications for a leader is somebody i have to bail out of a problem 
<laughs> oh lord but and yeah it's 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 90s dr polaris thankfully we don't have to look at his oh he had some goofy he had a goofy helmet if i recall at the time yes i think it was quite yeah i, I would believe uh, that 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 time being most of his existence that's true uh so <laughs> and, and he's he's purple he's got purple and blue so yeah there's that going too but yeah the do we have any other specific notes we want to cover in this? I thought this was a, like I said, a great action-filled issue. We had the uh, the Ron Mars one, which was kind of dialogue-heavy and got the relationships between the three characters going on. We've mm-hmm. got the Chuck Dixon issue, which is the uh, action-heavy one where we everyone gets their chance to shine in their own fighting style, and then we're gonna get the the Grant yeah. Morrison. Mark Miller one, which is, well, I guess we'll get to that here in a few. The uh, the one ad that really caught my attention in this one, in this particular issue, was the ad for Cataclysm, oh, which yeah. w- which actually brought me back to the Batman titles after being away for about two years. And again, it just reminded me of all everything that kind of happened in 1998 that was pretty huge for DC. I mean. He, you know, you, you can you can mock it all you want, but the Millennium Giants was kind of a big deal because it brought Superman back from the whole Electric Blue era. And then you had Cataclysm, where Gotham is pretty much destroyed in an earthquake. You have all the stuff going on in Flash. You have all the stuff going. Sean, I am so envious of you right now because you are about to hit Emerald Knights. I'm looking <sighs> forward to that. I'm really looking forward to that. It's been so long since I've read that. And I'm wanting to see, you know, how it holds up and, you know, how it, you know, how it works again. But, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. So, uh, see what it's like to have Hal back. Yes. And uh, another crossover with Green Arrow. Mm-hmm. I'm and I'm disappointed I, that you didn't really find anything interesting about the Parappa the Rapper advert. <laughs> you know? Punch. It's all in the mind. <laughs> uh See, I never had a PlayStation 3, so I never got to play Parappa the Rapper, but I I know from everyone that I've talked to that it was just a fun as heck game. Block punch kick. See the, punch block. The the thing that I that I had forgotten about was that they actually had J. Michael Straczynski and Peter David write a Babylon 5 comic for DC. And this I guess was when uh oh, what is it? Warner Brothers actually would allow J. Michael Straczynski to promote the Babylon 5 book outside of the actual show. So, uh, What I'm saying is, Netflix, get on it and get Babylon 5 on streaming because I want to watch the heck out of that. There's my editorial for them. But do we have anything else on this issue? Nope. Okay, well then I'm going to call this done. I'm going to say we take one last break. I'm going to play a couple of promos here. And as soon as we get back, Dave is going to bring us in with a very Mark Miller, Grant Morrison episode or issue sode or issue of The Flash. Stay tuned, folks. Every greed of Mongol lived together 
Wait, he said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of The Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.lipson.com He joined the crusade. He helped rule the night. He fought for justice. He wore short pants. Okay, so Robin didn't always have the best fashion sense. But there's no way that he should be ignored, ridiculed, or even derided by some Bat fans. He's been an important part of Batman's history for nearly 75 years, and that's why I've decided to give him his due in Taking Flight. Presented by the Batman Universe, Taking Flight is a podcast dedicated to all incarnations of the Boy Wonder, and every episode I take a look at the adventures of Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, Damian Wayne, and all the others who have worn the red, green, and gold at the side of the Cape Crusader, as well as in solo adventures, whether it be as Robin, Nightwing, Red Robin, or the Red Hood. New episodes appear every two weeks at the Batman Universe, which can be found at thebatmanuniverse.net, and you can find additional show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. So join me, Tom Panneries, as I put the spotlight on the greatest sidekick in comicdom. And once again, we are back to take a look at the third part of the storyline, Flash number 135. Dave Walker, take it away, sir. Okay, Flash 135. This was cover dated March 1998 and released on January 28th, 1998, a couple of weeks after the Green Arrow issue. So this was the longest one we had to wait for, unfortunately. Our writers this time are Mark Miller and Grant Morrison, penciler Paul Ryan, inker John Nyberg, Letter Gaspar Saldano, colorist Tom McGraw, Ellie Williams as the assistant editor, and the proper editor was Paul Kupperberg. Had you been buying this at the time, it would have only cost you one pound ninety or one dollar ninety-five, sorry, and in Canada two seventy-five. If they'd bothered to put a UK price on it, probably would have been about one pound twenty. And unfortunately, this is the only part that I've been able to find on Comixology. And I have to wonder why this issue was cheaper than Green Arrow at the time. 
Our tale continues outside an Alaskan hospital where the heroes are watching sadly as the passengers and crew are taken care of by the emergency teams. Some with hot drinks and warm blankets, others with oxygen tanks and for some unfortunate people body bags. We jump forward an indeterminate amount of time into the future to day one of the trial of Sonar, Heatwave and Hatchet and also the beginning of Wally's testimony. Also present are Connor and Kyle, with Connor seemingly engrossed in a book while Kyle is watching intently. Well, I assume he is, but it's kind of sort of hard to tell with that mask. Wally relays his and the other hero's reasons for being on the trip, and officially identifying Heatwave and Hatchet as the defendants present. Seems Sonar is currently comatose following the incident and is unable to be there that day. The prosecution finishes with its questions for now, and the defense declines to ask anything. Another jump takes us to day two, where Heatwave is now in the stand, regaling us with his and his compadres' reasons for being aboard the cruise ship. Turns out their big plan was to get into Iraq, rescue Dr. Polaris, revive him, and make him the leader of their little troop. I'm pretty sure, however, that if you have the skills to kind of pull this off, you could probably accomplish things a little bit simpler. With this information, Mr. Toffler, the prosecutor, accuses Heatwave and his co-defendants of the murder of the 42 people left dead following the events on the ship, and with a Phoenix Wright-style objection, the defense attorney claims that due to the defendant's lack of education, that they should only be charged with smuggling. This slimy, slick solicitor is Bernard Weinstein, a ridiculously expensive and successful lawyer famed for getting the great and benevolent Mr. Lex Luthor out of prison in a matter of minutes. The Justice Leaguers and Toffler ponder how exactly these guys can afford such a man, with Wally assuming it won't matter as it's the testimonies of three heroes against those of the criminals. Connor, however, mentions that he thinks Weinstein knows something they don't, and we then proceed on to day three. It's now Kyle's turn on the stand and he is being questioned by Weinstein. Well, I say being questioned, but the guy is too busy complaining about the Green Lantern using his 12th Amendment right to retain his anonymity to actually bother to ask anything. Toffler understandably objects to this, but if Law and & Order and other such shows have taught us anything, it's that the damage has already been done, even after Weinstein apologizes and requests the jury disregard his statement. The judge sustains this objection and proceeds to ask GL to give his version of the events, leading us at last to a flashback to the events roughly after where the Green Arrow issue finished. Even with the massive hole in the ship, uh, care of Hatchet, Dr. Polaris decided that he just wasn't sinking fast enough. In a move that would make Johnny Five scream, he disassembled the cruise liner, leaving the passengers and crew floating in the freezing Arctic waters. While Wally grabbed the diabolical doctor, taking him out of the equation, Kyle ringed up some awesome Viking longboats constructs for the passengers to climb into. It was at this point that Sonar decided to reappear, riding on a bubble of signed, proceeding to blast the Emerald Gladiator with what Kyle himself describes as the sound of a thousand rabbits screaming. And I wonder if that's similar to what it sounds like when doves cry. Unsurprisingly, this managed to cause GL to lose concentration enough to send the semi-sea of sea travelers back into the drink, as his constructs just dissolved. Bubbles of audio energy served as platforms for Sonar's villainous allies as he raised them up to deliver the final attack on Kyle's hovering form. 
It's a good thing, however, that Connor Hawk is awesome. With just his bow out of the water and his entire body submerged, he fired a single arrow directly into the shoulder of the auditory antagonist, disrupting his powers and sending the villains into the water. Turnabout is fair play, I guess. With this part of the tale finished, we return to the courtroom, where Weinstein makes an attempt to shift the blame for GL's concentration loss onto something other than his clients, such as the stress of the situation. Before Kyle has a chance to refute this claim, the defence ends its questioning and we continue on to day five. From the Metropolis branch of Star Labs, a scientist in a cool bow tie, but lacking a fez, relates the current status of Dr. Polaris via either a recording or some kind of video link. Turns out th that the good doctor was somehow contained within an estimated 1,000 sheets of solid steel, but is also seemingly still alive. How did this happen, you may ask? Well, so would people in the courtroom, which is exactly why Wally has retaken the stand. We discover here that Wally keeps up to date with scientific journals in an effort to have new ideas to counteract his various foes' abilities. As nobody in his rogues gallery is a master of magnetism, his knowledge was a little lacking in this department. He tells of how, while trying to come up with a plan to defeat the villain, he had to keep Polaris distracted in order to hopefully keep the guy's mind off such things as dr the drowning passengers he may have wanted to kill. Having utilised his abilities to vibrate his molecules, the, star the Scarlet Speedster appeared to disappear, sending Polaris off on a monologue that ends up getting interrupted by the whirling tornado of punches from our favourite speedster. That's not all he did though. Using his ability to give speed force energy to others, he essentially turned Polaris into a super magnet, causing the remains of the Aurora Borealis to be drawn to him, engulfing him in the metallic cocoon we witnessed him to still be in. With that having been dealt with, Flash then sped off to give away Green Lantern and Green Arrow's first names to a hopefully distracted group of waterlogged witnesses. The Lantern, however, was a little bit busy, barking at, barking at Wally to shut up as he was trying to produce a girlfriend for a canned goods mascot that has a penchant for stealing the catchphrases of jolly bearded fat men who like giving presents. Modeling her after, I assume, Pamela Anderson, this 50-foot woman scooped from the icy water the passengers, leaving them in relative safety. However, while the color-based named heroes had managed to save most of the passengers, some were not that lucky, and with that our testimonies cease. Mr. Toffler begins the closing uh, arguments, accusing once again these villains of this heinous act and urging the jury to find them guilty. Weinstein, however, produces a statement from Sonar that it turns out contains enough information to confirm that Sonar, Heat, Wave and Hatchet were on a covert military operation of which the latter two villains had no knowledge. This means that they are unable to be found guilty by a public court and instead need to be taken to a military court, and it's assumed that the defendants will be let go without punishment. Toffler is held back by Wally as Weinstein puts on his coat and has someone light his cigar for him. He smugly brags about how much he costs and of not having lost a case in 40 years when Green Arrow interjects. This slimy piece of worm-ridden filth of a lawyer mocks Connor, Connor's father, and his overconfidence comes through when he believes that the young hero has been reading law books the entire time, and may have found something he missed. In his second moment of awesome for this issue, Connor reveals that the book he was reading was actually a guide to researching law, that it almost seems like he brought for Wally to read. 
obviously our titular hero has already taken to doing this, and he speeds off to scar a library for anything they can use to alter this result. As luck would have it, he manages to find something fr that, from the look of Toffler's face, is exactly what they need. Sometime later, at the home of Linda Park and Wally West, the heroes try to enjoy a cup of coffee, served in ring construct mugs, as they update Linda, and by extension us the readers, of what exactly it was that Wally found. It turns out there is something in law that allows for the Alaskan state attorney to overrule a military court, and as the incident took place in the waters off Alaska, Weinstein is basically up the proverbial creek without a paddle. As Linda has to be up for work in the morning, they call it a night, and Connor hitches a ride in an awesome jet car construct on his way to a hot date with Julie from the ship, who I'm now assuming is a redhead, as Wally and Linda wave them off. While this next part doesn't really affect this show in any way, our issue finishes with an epilogue. In space, where no one can hear you scream, you can still read little red boxes. In this case, we have them saying, targeting Keystone City. As we make our way into the solar system past Pluto and Saturn, finally locating Earth and locking onto its target. With a crack of womb, an explosion takes out a building as the police try to keep people back. We see the smoldering body of a character known as G-Force, and he relays a warning that Flash must win the ultimate race, or Earth dies too. Dum dum dum. Yeah, the ending was a bit weird, but I I understand it's part of the ongoing storyline in the Flash book. But overall, this was the three books have had their own little niches. The first one I yeah. said was very you know relationship heavy and very talky. The second one was very action heavy, and this third one was a legal drama, which yeah. which is just really kind of out there, especially for. And the fact that we've got these two incredibly big name uh, writers, at least big name now on the book, writing this sort of simple legal drama. Um, I It was enjoyable. It was just kind of it was the one thing that felt the most out of place in this. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it does take them a while to actually get back to the story we were continuing on from. Mm hmm. Uh, I don't know why they chose to do that, and I'm just disappointed that they didn't have Dumb Dumb after they gave the day, you know? Because that's that's how every courtroom drama should be. You know, you have that, and it goes, Dumb Dumb! <laughs> yeah, I definitely get a Law & Order feel throughout most of reading this book. Yeah. Um, can I ask, does anyone have any clue who Andrew Turk is? He gets special thanks on there. I tried to find information about him, but find nothing. I have no idea. Michael? Um, actually, I don't know, uh, so I, I'm going to fail you all in, well, in that regard. No, I so, mean, <laughs> maybe he's a lawyer or something. That's that's kind of what I've got to think. Here's my only issue with this issue. Allow myself to introduce myself. Um, I am not a fan of the final chapter of a story being told in flashbacks. This is better than Secret Invasion. 
where you had like this epic storyline that was leading to this one thing, and then it's all told in flashbacks in the final issue, and that was kind of weird. Uh, and that's not an indictment on Marvel. That's not an indictment on Brian Michael Bendis. That's uh, that's just a personal thing on, on on how I like to see these stories play out. Is you had like this really epic introduction. You had this really cool action oriented second um, second chapter, and then the third part. Oh, that's all done. We're just going to tell you what happened. Mm-hmm. Especially because the consequences of what happened in that second chapter is that forty two people lost their lives. I mean, it's it's good to know that the the heroes saved a lot of people, but there was a lot of death that came across this, and it's not really you you're, you don't really see or feel the the resonance of that death in this book. It's just kind of an afterthought, and I do think the uh, idea of it being a flashback story does kind of diminish the like I said the resonance in the fact that forty two people died in the previous issue. So maybe they figured putting a flashback in a book titled Flash made sense. That that's the best I can do. Sorry, uh, could be. I mean, to to be fair, having it just the events just play out. This is like the fourth chapter of a four part story that only had three chapters. Yeah, kind of. That that does kind of feel that way. Because it is, it was interesting. Don't don't get me wrong. I. I I had issues with Morrison and Miller's run on The Flash that actually had nothing to do with Grant Morrison or Mark Miller because Mark Miller was a very different writer at this point and Grant Morrison was not Grant Morrison though mm-hmm. he was if that makes any sense I don't know it he does. wasn't he wasn't the lightning rod that he has become that he became over the last like 10 years I guess is the best way to say that and, you know, at the time he was he was writing JLA, which was the hottest book at DC. And so him coming on to Flash was was a big deal, but only in that the guy writing a, a popular book is now moving on to another book. And Mark Wade is stepping down, which, again, bothered me at the time because I loved Wade's run on the Flash. And I really felt that they were trying to introduce too much silver age and this is this is me at night in 1998 feeling this this isn't actually you know kind of how it was if that makes any sense this was you know 22 year old mike with his kind of narrow version vision of how comics should be feeling it at the time that it was just like oh he's just he's just bringing in all that silver age stuff and i don't want that i don't want that at all i want i want i want now and to be fair i haven't read this run since then so I really can't make a judgment call on whether or not that's true or not. But out, aside from feeling like this isn't how the the, the conclusion should have be should have been handled, it, it was rather an engaging read. You know, it, having it be a legal drama was kind of interesting to to me. Though I will have to say this: the the the, the prosecutor kind of looks like editor Kevin Dooley uh, <laughs> a little bit, and at the end. I don't know. Were they trying to make the the Weinstein guy look like Julius Schwartz? Was he supposed to be Saul Brodsky? I See, mean, I don't know. I got more of a uh, Robert Shapiro from the O.J. Simpson trial type thing. That's he, probably what they were going for, he, given the timing. But also in here, if you take a look at uh, page three, the the middle panel there, where we see the defendants uh, right aside the uh, attorney or the defense attorney there. I, I looked and I did some Google image searches for Morrison and Miller. And if these aren't sort of photo referenced versions of them, I will eat this comic book. I mean, uh, the Heat Wave definitely looks like Morrison. 
and Miller has a pretty close approximation to uh, what is attached here. So uh, yeah, I, I don't mind photo references in the books. I think it's kind of neat, but this is pretty obvious, at least to me. One thing that I had, I had a little nitpick, and this is just uh, geography and continuity. On the first page, they're bringing the people and, unfortunately, the body bags, as we see up in the upper left or in the middle left corner, uh, to Juno General Hospital. Now, on the sign, it's spelled J-U-N-O, and, you know, that's improper spelling of Juno. Juno is, what, J... J-U-N-E-A-U, so... And plus, also, even though Juno is a port city, it is very... It's very inland, and it's very far south in Alaska. And if they were actually heading to the North Pole, first of all, it's going to take them a long time to get to the North Pole, because it is a big trek to get around the coast of Alaska to get up there. But this is all just nitpicky stuff, and you know, it, it really doesn't do anything to the to the story, but it's just me being nitpicky about it. Just Is remember the, the villains are stupid. Oh, that's true. Is the theme to this episode gonna be north to Alaska? Because I think that would be awesome. I can I can put it in, sure. Ah. No, do um, how can you how, how cultural references that mean nothing now, babe? Watch. Um, yes, I, I love that it's there. I really do. It's not that I'm making fun of it, but I wonder somebody who has no idea what Baywatch was or why it was a big deal would make of this right now. Mm-hmm. And is, it might also be self-referential almost. Um, I had a quick look at the Aquaman issues that Dr. Polaris was in apparently only a month before this but the second issue of that story was actually called bib wash uh, bib watch as well <laughs> See, you know, they have a ton of people showing up including uh par girl hmm. so. See, and i'm looking at this uh, image here of the uh, very obviously trying to reference someone from baywatch uh, character construct here it looks like the green lantern symbol is sort of just pasted on to her left breast there it just seems it doesn't look like it's actually part of the uniform and i'm wondering if that was to you know uh, if that was put in afterwards, if that was put in to sort of... You know, it's possible there was a little nipplage there that they oh, well, didn't that feel comfortable with, that. so they decided, hey, we're just gonna we're just gonna slap that sticker right on there. Yeah. Kyle's just all about the branding. You know? <laughs> True. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, Dave, uh, it, on page two, Wally references that uh, he recently had his legs broken. He yes. was both broken broke both of his legs what uh, actually went on with that that's the emergency stop storyline which is one of my favorites basically uh that's what i was talking about earlier um there's some time travel there's um basically they find the dead body of wally west which turns out to not really be dead uh, just in case i spoiled that for you we're kind of in the issues after that so but yeah um uh, he has to run fast enough to kind of restart his body and stuff and he's taking on this character called the suit which takes over people it's a possessed costume by gambini and in the events of that he breaks his legs 
Now the suit keeps going on and trying to possess people and eventually Wally manages to take speed force energy, construct it around himself to allow him to basically run with two broken legs with the suit itself acting as a kind of full body cast and that's where the speed force costume came from as well but it was all introduced in that one story okay really a lot of fun there again this is why i love having you know guys from various different uh areas of the podcast universe to come on and school me about this stuff because otherwise i would be completely completely clueless with this um another and again this is just me being nitpicky and it probably doesn't matter because this is the dc universe and not the uh you know the regular r universe but when uh on page seven panel one when uh uh, the defense attorney says that green lantern is taking his 12th amendment rights to not testify here if you look at the actual 12th amendment in the united states constitution That is the amendment that deals with the establishment of the Electoral College and how we go about electing the president and the vice president. Because I guess it used to be when the votes came in, the person who came, who who got the most votes was the president. And then after that, the person who got the second most amount of votes was the vice president. So you could have had actual different parties have president and vice president. And this was basically establishment of the electoral college. And I guess in the DC universe, it's more like the fifth amendment. You know, what would have been cooler. uh, Sorry. The typing you heard was me Googling the 12th amendment. Um, What would have been cooler is establishing a new amendment to the constitution that masked vigilantes do not have to uh, expose their identities to, um, to the, uh, when testifying in court, because, you know, the, the thing is, is that Batman can't testify in court because he's not testifying as who he really is. He's testifying under another name. So basically you could get Batman on the, on the stand and, you know, and ask him, who are you really? And he really doesn't have any legal wiggle room to not, you know, have to, you know, he can't say, I, I don't want to, I want, I, I'm going to plead the fifth because Batman for a lot of his existence was a duly deputized, you know, law enforcement agent with a platinum badge and everything, which is, you know, who the heck paid for the platinum badge? I have no idea, but still, you know, so it would have been kind of cool to to explore the legalities of masked vigilantes in a world where that is the norm. So, you know, the 12th Amendment thing, I kept thinking, I just I just didn't bother researching it. I do apologize. I'm glad that you did, because now I feel silly for not having done it. But but that seems that is that is basically what happens when you have um, two people who are. Not from the states talking about the states. Maybe. Well, and uh, more if, than anything else, you know, I, because it is in the DC universe, you know, I expect that they might have a different constitution, you know, a constitution that is similar to the United States Constitution, but might have different amendments. And perhaps in this universe, the Twelfth Amendment does uh, allow, you know, costume vigilantes to testify under oath without having to reveal their true identity, because that is kind of one of the one of the things about the legal system is if you are 
you you do have the right to recuse the people that are testifying against you. You you know that's one of the main legal tenets. So yeah, the, the fact that they skirted that with this amendment here, you know, kind of gives you know it gives credit to Morrison and Miller, I guess, thinking ahead and putting that in as a part of the DC universe, I guess. There's an interesting implication that could be made from this as well. I assume the amendments happen in order, you know, like you have Amendment 1, Amendment 2 kind of happening chronologically. If it's anything like our world, then that would possibly put this amendment having come into place late 1700s, early 1800s, which would mean they had metahumans back then as well. I, I, I don't know of any. I know that most of the ones kind of happened 1850s uh the only one i really know metahuman wise is max mercury or quicksilver or whatever he was going by back then but i just like that there's an implication that that happened possibly you had them fighting during the civil war or the revolutionary war or whatever wars happened back then sorry no that's 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 actually an interesting concept if there were metahumans fighting in the revolutionary war and they had to testify against say, uh, British operatives or whatever, and uh, they didn't want to recuse themselves or allow their secret identity to be known, that the uh, the Congress at the time passed this law to allow that kind of stuff to happen. Perhaps, you know, that would be a story that, you know, someone could actually mine for a good idea. Mm. I don't think anything ever happens with it. I think I may be wrong, but I think this is the only place that 12th Amendment comes up, but... Probably so. It uh, would be interesting. I do think Connor, again, you're you're correct. He does have some awesome moments in this issue. I don't know about you. I've never been in freezing water, but I've been in very cold water. And I can tell you, you do not want to do anything but get out of it when yeah. you're in it. And the fact that he's able to, from underwater, knock an arrow and shoot it into sonar's shoulder is just completely and wholly awesome i've I've fired arrows i've managed to hit things with arrows that i that i was aiming for it's big round circular target thing i managed to get it on the board i i still don't know how you could hit something whilst trying not to freeze Mm -hmm. well he's just that good i mean and that that goes to the heart of who connor is as a character uh, is that, you know, and we were kind of talking about it earlier, that he's not superhuman, he's just that freaking good. When you really think about it, you know, he was raised in a monastery, and this is all he did. Like, every day. Shot arrows, martial arts. Shot arrows, martial arts. And I was thinking about this the other day of, you know, the people that get into, you know, martial arts as kind of like a hobby almost, I guess maybe the best way to say it, and are good at it, but then there are the people that devote their entire lives to studying it, and what some things that they might miss out on to a certain extent because they, they're so focused on it, like, you know, some of them may never have watched certain television shows because television wasn't part of what they were doing. So I was thinking about that. It's like, on one hand, yes, when I was a kid, I could have gotten into martial arts and been like a black belt today. But on the other hand, maybe I wouldn't have gotten into comic books. 
And I'm not saying that you can't be into martial arts and comic books, but to be at the level that Connor Hawk is, you kind of have to do nothing else but that. You know what I'm saying? Like, you have yeah. to kind of... You, you, you can't get into other hobbies like you would like you would have because you're focusing... I mean, for all we knew, Connor at one point was thrown into a cold lake and told to shoot an arrow. And, like, this is just him calling back to that training. Wouldn't surprise me, because I, I can tell you, when you are cold and in the water and... Uh, He's you're you're assuming he's close to the North Pole of Alaska. Hypothermia is going to kick in pretty quick. And if you're not out of the water within minutes, yes, you are dead. So the fact that he pulls this off is just another testament to how awesome of a character that Connor Hawk is. I, I also like on uh, page 13 that we're getting back to the sort of flashbacks type thing. It's not necessarily the Barry Allen you know, Silver Age flashbacks, but I'm glad that that Wally is at least using the knowledge of, you know, his abilities to uh, take out Polaris. And I thought it was a kind of interesting. Yes, it's a very comic book science thing where he uses the speed force to amplify Polaris's powers to turn him into a giant uh, superconductor. But it, it's fun. I, I, I like that better than just, you know, I punched him a lot of times. So I just like the fact that he's um, he's reading scientific journals because at one point he was doing some sort of physics degree or he was he was studying physics at one point. So it kind of makes sense that he would at least have a knowledge of that sort of thing and be able to do it because he's still jobless at the minute as far as I'm aware. You know, he doesn't actually do anything apart from being a hero, at least until after. Uh, Hunter Zolomon comes in around. Uh, but yeah, the other thing I don't get is he says he doesn't really fight anyone who uses magnetism, um, except for his ex-girlfriend, who pops up every now and again. Y- you think he would have thought, you know what, in case she comes around again, I better look something up. You know? Well, there, there, there there's two arguments for that. One, you're right. Mm-hmm. And it was just uh, like an oversight on the part of Morrison and Miller, uh, who may not have really seen Francis Kane as somebody who was like a big part of Wally's life. On the other hand, maybe it was just an emotional blind spot. Yeah. Like because he cared about her and he never really saw her as a villain, you know, even though he had to fight her, you know, maybe he didn't like on a subconscious level, he never studied it because he didn't want to know how to defeat her. If that makes any sense. Oh yeah. But I just like that. They keep coming up with original ways for him to use his abilities. It's something that is fairly good about this time. You know, they're trying to find new ways for him to do things. So he's not just known as a guy who can run fast. Mm -hmm. That's, that's always, you know, uh, that's always a good thing about the Flash because he can always get, you know, shoehorned into this idea that he's just the guy who runs fast. And I like the fact that they're expanding on the fact that he's far more than that. He's knowledgeable. There's different things that he can do with his powers and all that. So, yeah, a, a credit to the writers that they're actually bringing in some more of these what I like to call Silver Age tropes and applying them to the then modern age. But, yeah. 
I, I do love that they have um, the characters in the background as well, uh, with Connor reading the book the entire time. Mm-hmm. And I think we even see Julie basically staring at him the entire time. I think it's Julie. It's a brunette. Um, she, she may be blonde again by this point. She may be a redhead. She may have black hair. Who knows? <laughs> well, you but, know, it, you know, you survive a traumatic, you know, destruction of your ship. You know, you want to do something nice for yourself. Go get a go hair color and, you know, maybe nails and who knows what else. I don't know. That's woman stuff. I don't do that. So. But, you know, we but, get the, uh, you know, we get the very law and order dramatic, uh, surprise ending where, you know, shyster attorney is like, oh, guess what? This was a military operation. You know, we can't do anything. You know, you can't prosecute my people because this is going to be has- prosecuted on a military trial. I win again. And of course, that gets, that gets completely botched by Connor again. Who is using his brains? I love it. It's just Connor's just, such an awesome character. I just love the fact that Connor wasn't looking up a way that he could find out how things were done. He was basically looking up a way that he could get Wally to look up how things are done. Mm-hmm. It's again, it's a brilliant idea on the part of the writers here, and giving it to Connor, showing that he's awesome. I, I just and, like the idea of legal foo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? It's just like he, he basically, you know, well, I'm going to approach this like I would approach any situation where I'm going to learn everything I can about it. And just, you know, use, you know, using Wally as a shortcut is just the it, it's it's a clever issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why in the end it didn't bug me as much that this is how they ended things, because I was kind of engrossed in what was going on. And to be fair all three of these chapters not only tell a larger story, but they reflect what was going on in their books at the time. You know, Kyle was, Kyle's story was very emotional at this point. So he's going to have the more emotionally driven chapter. You know, Green Arrow was a great action book. So his is the action piece of it. Morrison and Miller were writing a very, densely plotted flash run. So tricks like this of a legal ruse were just the norm of what was going on. It fit very well into what they were writing. So again, bravo to the three of them to be able to pull this off the way they did. Yeah. And it, go ahead. Now I was just thinking, uh, obviously out out of the three of them, this one kind of stands alone, uh, mostly by itself because they, basically are able to recap the entire issue through the courtroom dialogue at the start. You can read this one without having read the other two, but it would probably lose something in that. You know, you wouldn't have the emotional stuff. You wouldn't have the action. You'd just be left with the courtroom stuff. And while it is good, it's it would need the other stuff. Yeah, well, and I think that's a testament to the three issues themselves, that they all sort of rely on each other to kind of make a really good whole that uh, you can you can look at each individual issue on its own as a fun little story but when you compile them all together it makes a really good three-part story that you know that has a beginning middle and end it has action it has drama it has a scientific you know 
workings. It has legal workings. It's all just a great storyline that you sometimes don't get in modern day comics. And, you know, these little short, you know, I did this a while back on the hate crime storyline that was just three little issues that ran together. It wasn't, it never felt like this was something that was supposed to be collected for the trade. It was just a simple little story that worked throughout these three books and it worked well. And also it was, okay, this worked out so well when we did the hard traveling heroes, the next generation. So let's throw these characters again. And, you know, the thing with how Wally and, and, and Kyle and Connor all got along, you know, outside of the fact that they're the legacy characters. So obviously there's, there's some commonality in that, but you know, I, I actually was very, you know, as much as I was a fan of Wally, I was really annoyed with how he reacted to Kyle when Kyle hit the scene because he was very, very ugly towards him. Like just, just, just in like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Hostile in a way that, because, well, you're never going to be Green Lantern because I knew Green Lantern, which pissed me off because Wally went through the same thing when he took over for Barry. So on one hand, yeah, it, it makes sense that you would have, you know, like the best way to handle this situation is to have them be antagonistic towards each other because that at first, because that yeah. creates drama. But to me, it would have been more like, wow, I know what this dude's going through. You know, he had this thrust upon him and now he has to live up to it. Maybe I should be a little friendlier, but then they evened out into this nice buddy relationship where they would kind of hang out and go out for beer, and now Connor is involved, and it just made it... It just it, it evolved so nicely to me. I agree. But do we have, a, you know, do we have anything to sort of wrap up the storyline? Well, you know, I'm, obviously, I think this was a really good storyline. Each individual part worked together and enhanced the whole, and overall, this is something that if you can find in the back issue, Ben's definitely go pick it up. Yeah, I'm just curious about the Lex Luthor thing. Was Lex Luthor still Lex Luthor at this point? What, 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 what was the deal with him? Because I know he was a clone, and then he wasn't a clone, and time got um, rewritten. And well, I, I can't remember when that happened. Time didn't rewritten. What what happened <laughs> is is you know Lex was a clone, yeah, and then he sold his soul to Neron for a healthy body. Right. So basically. Yeah. His body was, he was still a clone, so to speak, but he was, he looked like himself. You know, he was so bald he was again. And, you know, he was back to being bald and all that. And he was actually, at this point in time, he was still, he had just come back into the public eye. Because for like 95 and 96, he was kind of in the background and it was only, you know, it's funny that they say the one time Lex Luthor got arrested, you know, this guy was his lawyer. That's not quite true because he was put on trial again and vindicated for all of the crimes that his clone did because he, the, he had another clone created, burst into the courtroom and basically put enough plausible deniability. And uh, what is that? What is that? Th that legal term that I'm looking for, uh, you know, he presented another reasonable scenario. Doubt? Yeah, re he presented enough reasonable doubt that when his lawyer said this clone did it and that my client had nothing to do with what was going on and then a clone burst into the courtroom, then it, it, it makes sense, basically, that that's what happened. 
And at the very beginning of 97, he, he really went into full Lex Luthor mode by having the mayor of Metropolis assassinated. And See, I remember that. Just recreating his power base. So at this point, he was rich Lex Luthor, you know, head of LexCorp, and everything was kind of back to the way it was before he died. Completely forgot that they ripped that off again. I, I, I didn't know that they, I couldn't, didn't remember that they did it here, but they essentially used the, was it Lex Luthor 3 later on? The, the guy that looked like Lex Luthor from the other dimension or the other reality. And said, he has green eyes. He was the one responsible for all the other bad stuff I did since. Yeah, they, they, the they played thing. that again during 52 that basically all of the, all of the evil things that Lex Luthor did was his alternate Double reality one. counterpart who's now oh. dead. Convenient. Yeah. You think someone would notice the pattern by now? No. Yeah, with as much money as he has? Mm. Probably. <laughs> But guys, uh, unless we've got anything else to say about this stuff, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And I am really glad that I got to talk to you guys for this amount of time and talk to you about what I think are some really, really fun issues from this era. Um, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys uh, plug some of the stuff that you're doing on the Internet. Uh, Dave, do you want to go ahead and go first? Yep, I have my own podcast whenever I get around to it called Flash Legacies, where I talk about uh, pretty much everything involving Wally West from uh, the first time he basically put on the Flash costume and going forward. Uh, I also occasionally show up on Who True Freaks over at the Two True Freaks website, so you can hear me chat to people, including certain other people on the call, uh, about Doctor Who. Uh, the last one we did, I believe, was the Day of the Doctor. Mm-hmm, we did I don't that. Think we ha- I, I don't know if there's anything coming out after that that may have been recorded before that or vice uh, versa. I know we've but, got one in the can. I'm trying to remember what it was. I think it was... Because, no, we did the Five Doctors and we did the Day of the Doctor. Yeah. And I think upcoming we'll have another one coming out pretty soon that might be talking about the uh, time of the Doctor. But, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. yeah, go definitely – if you're a Doctor Who fan, go check out Who True Freaks. But, yeah. And that's pretty much it. Okay. Uh, Michael? Well, Views from the Long Box is my sometimes solo, sometimes guest hosting show where I talk about just about anything that pops into my head. Uh, I was focused in 2013 a lot on Superman because it was his 75th anniversary. So now things will probably move away from that a little bit. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm not going to talk about what I'm going to talk about because every time I announce something, I just end up not doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, I'm i tired of letting people down in that regard. So just uh, no idea what's coming. It's just a comic book podcast where I talk about comics and what I was, you know, what sandwich I was eating when I first read them and stuff like that. <laughs> Um, there's also from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast, which hasn't come out in a couple weeks as of this recording, mainly because work has just killed me and, uh, getting them out has been a little more difficult, but, uh, Jeffrey and I have been discussing the post crisis adventures of Superman. We're getting into the fall of Metropolis, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, the battle for and the fall of, and pretty soon we'll be talking about zero hour and all that kind of awesome 90s stuff. Uh, you guys have, uh, 
you have just blown by us timeline wise, Sean. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I kind of feel <laughs> kind of feel embarrassed about. You know, you guys basically set the standards with uh, from Christ to Crisis of coming in this era, and I came in way afterwards. And now the fact that I'm kind of ahead of you, you know, just it. it well, it, your your you series didn't. St- your, your your series didn't start in 1986, okay. so and plus you're also covering what now four issues or, or you know four and then we've got we're talking about Superboy we're talking about Steel we're talking about Outsiders though I've I've kind of taken a stance with Outsiders that uh, that if I'm reading the issue and the Eradicator doesn't show up I don't feel like I really have to talk about it but uh, we still mention it just 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 the same so yeah but yeah you've got a heck of a lot more content to cover than I do I mean I've got you know a Green Lantern an issue and then for a time i had a guy gardener issue yeah you guys have way more stuff to cover so and, and shows etc and while uh i am one of five people on planet earth right now that doesn't watch doctor who uh, <laughs> i am also on the two true freaks network as part of comics monthly monday and occasionally uh every once in a while i'll pop up on back to the bins and all that just because it's it's a lot of fun and, and here of course because it's part of the network and I've been guest starring on Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, which is also part of the network. And, you know, so it's a very incestuous group. But, uh, you know, it's really funny that uh, everyone has been all my friends on Facebook have been talking nothing about even even friends from high school that weren't that I never saw any real geeky inclinations of are talking about Doctor Who. And I'm like the one person that didn't watch it. So it's kind of weird. I'm very happy for everybody. And I wish I could join in, but I just. I haven't gotten that bug yet because I have a feeling that once I start, it's kind of like Pringle, uh, kind of like Pringles. Once you pop, you just don't want to stop. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really happy for everybody and really feel bad that for everybody that lost Matt Smith, uh, RIP. Well, with me, it was like, uh, the cigarette industry. They got me whilst I was young. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that is a way to take this episode out. Everyone, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for listening. Gentlemen, thank you for showing up. It was always great talking with you. No problem. Awesome. Uh, Pleasure as always. And we will see you next Friday on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, take care, folks. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. 
but it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Oh yeah, that was the other thing about it. I just had a quick flick through it. Um, it the psychiatrist actually thinks that maybe Barry put the limits on him as well, trying to make him think that, that if he ever became evil, if he were to turn against them, like he was the thing or something. <laughs> yeah, that... fear of the Flash. <laughs> not, not even the Flash, Kid Flash, the 10-year-old, or possibly... 12 or 13, whatever. Well, he was a teenager, so yes, there oh, could be problems. What if he were to use his powers for evil? <laughs> because that happens so frequently. Yeah. Because mm. because nobody ever went bad who was a hero. You know, I just wanted to point this out, and this was just me kind of looking at this. In the, in the Green Lantern issue, the title for the book is Three of a Kind, Part 1. They oh, yeah. To, Move to the Green Arrow book. It's, it's got a subtitle. It's it's Death at the Top of the World, and then in the Flash, it's Death at the Top of the World Part Three. So they pulled a Rambo on us. <laughs> well, it it kind of makes sense that they didn't really get to any kind of death at the top of the world That's until true. the Green Arrow issue. That's true. You know. But then would but... it be Death at the Top of the World Part Two? Exactly. That's why I'm saying because it went first blood, then first blood part two, Rambo first blood part two, then it was Rambo three. There was no (laughs) Rambo two. It's going to be a blind spot because basically what happened, it was around the time I had had my first kid and I was basically got to this point around the 125s, about around 125 Green Lantern, that I basically said, I can't. You know, I've got to man up and I've got to be an adult, so I can't go to the comic book store all the time. I've got to start, you know, being a dad. So I dropped out, and this was right about the time that Winnick came on the book. So I have not read the Winnick issue, so I'm looking forward to going forward and uh, reading those and, you know, getting my own take on it and seeing how he does with it. Because I've heard... I've heard from everyone that the Winnick run is really good on Green Lantern. You know, Winnick is one of those people that that does good with individual characters, but when he mm-hmm. does group dynamics, it gets kind of eh. Kevin Smithy. Yes. <laughs>